Turn back to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter the rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time as just has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from all of his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. I want to talk to you this morning about the hindrances that we experience in entering the rest of God. Before I do that, we had a lot of conversation this past week. How many of you had good group discussions on this this topic in your small groups this past week? We had a lot of conversation this week about entering the rest of God. And as I listened to people talk, there were a couple of things that came up that I thought were so important. They came up more than once. I thought maybe I should clarify uh, just in case there were more of you who were thinking along these lines. One of the things I want to note is that when I'm speaking of the Sabbath rest of God or entering the rest of God, I'm not talking about having a quiet time or taking one day a week as a Sabbath day and, and resting on that day. I think those are important ingredients in living in the rest of God, but that is not the rest of God. The Sabbath rest of God is a state of being, not an event that takes place at a certain time. It is a state of being. It is an attitude or a state that exists no matter what's going on in your life. I think, if I read correctly an article some months back, that traders, <clears throat> that's D-E-R-S, traders on the stock market floor, exchange floors, have a shorter lifespan than air traffic controllers. The pressure is so incredible. And I want to tell you that if there are Christian traders on the floor of the stock exchange, and I hope there are a few somewhere down there, if they are, they can enjoy the rest of God in the midst of the trading of the day. It is possible to live in the rest of God in your busiest times. It is possible to live in the Sabbath rest of God in your greatest moments of stress and pressure. Because the rest of God is is an attitude of being, 
of abiding in Christ. That is a 24-7 existence. And it does not have to be interrupted just because you have to go to work or have to take care of a screaming kid or have to, uh, you know, go solve a problem or whatever like that. It doesn't have to end because of that. It should it should be your abide, your abode, your abiding rest when you're in the midst of those things. God can give you His rest that permeates your life and gives you that inner quiet of spirit and repose that comes from resting in Jesus Christ. There were a number of times when I was very conscious of that when I was with the rescue squad and I would be on a call and... It was my habit to kind of look to God in the midst of every situation, to to consciously address myself and say, Father, take charge here and, and direct me. Give me wisdom and give me guidance in every situation. And I would entrust to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God would be guiding me in that process. And... One of the calls that stands out to me is we made a call to a residence that um, an elderly woman had fallen and gone down in the doorway to her bedroom and was unresponsive. And it was a home to which we had already made two or three calls because of her declining health. And um, I had never had a chance to really talk with her deeply, but I, there, there was she was a sweet person. And I remember going to the house that night and finding her laying in the doorway and beginning to give care, she was indeed unresponsive, and her, and her rhythm was quite irregular. And when the rest of the squad arrived, we were transporting her out to the ambulance. And in the process, she went into a full arrest. Her heart stopped, and she coded. And, you know, we started the code process to do resuscitation, because that's, that was our, ex, you know, that was expected. And... I remember having such a sense of the presence of God. And after we started the code, the resuscitative effort, there was a moment when I sensed that her spirit left her body. Now, I don't ask me to explain that. I can't explain it, but it was a sense that I clearly had. And I had a peace of God come over me. Now, I am giving directions, managing this call. And things are going fast and furious, but I am aware of the presence of God. And as it turned out, we we were not successful in resuscitating her. And the family asked me to do the funeral because of my relationship to them. They knew that I was a pastor. They asked me to do the funeral, and so I did some investigation. And I found out that this woman was a very committed Christian. She was actively involved in an evangelical Lutheran congregation in Arizona in a retirement community and was living here with family because of her declining health. But she had been an an avid, committed Christian woman with a great testimony. And and I thought it was just special how God had had ministered that to me and, and how I was able to minister to the family in the sense of his presence. But I tell the story because God's Rest and God's presence can permeate even the fastest and furious of efforts in, in, in the body and in the time and space realm. We can still be resting in the abode of Christ. You know, so it's not 
oh, I had my quiet time this morning, I, I had a few minutes of rest. No, it's I'm living in that rest. That's where my abode is all the time. The second thing I want to say is the Sabbath rest of God is not an alternative option for super saints. Okay? You know, we give testimonies of Hudson Taylor and A.W. Tozer and Robert Jaffrey and A.B. Simpson and Billy Graham and, and you know, Dwight Moody and, and, and everybody thinks, ah, I know, that's, that's what the super saints get to have, the Sabbath rest of God. <clears throat> but I want to remind you that the writer of Hebrews is writing to all believers. And it is not something reserved for super saints. Watchman Nee, that great pastor in China at the beginning of the last century, called it the normal Christian life. And he said, if you have any other kind of life, you're not living the normal Christian life. You're living substandard. The rest of God is available for everyone. The third thing we need to note is there is a way out of the rat race. The average experience of the typical Christian is try, fail, be discouraged and frustrated, repent and confess, try again, fail again, be discouraged and frustrated, repent and confess, try again. Most Christians live their lives that way until they die or they bail out. Some believers bail out. They bail out at the try stage. They say, I'm just not going to try anymore. I'm just going to live my life, and when I die, I hope I go to heaven. And some Christians bail out in the discouragement phase. They just say, you know, I, I can never have victory. And they run around with these sad, forlorn faces and and defeated experiences and just kind of live in depression land. And some believers get hung up, you know, just in the whole repentance and confession thing. You know, they're, they're just locked there. They're trying, trying to somehow break through to God in purity. And, and some just quit entirely and say, it's just too hard, I'm not even going to do this anymore, whereas others... Uh, just kind of forget about the failure syndrome and they just say, I'm just going gonna, gonna to try all the rest of my life and they kind of rewrite the rules and become legalist. They, they, they try to adopt to things they can manage and just kind of ignore the rest of the stuff. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the Pharisees, you, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Good grief, people. You know, sometimes you need to hear Jesus in the vernacular. He says, what are you thinking? You fine-tuned it to the little things. You tithe mint and cumin, and you do a pretty good job with that. And you just blow it when it comes to self-control or when it comes to, to, to loving graciousness. You're just gone. Because legalists have to get a bite-sized piece of righteousness they can manage. And they tend to lock out all the rest because they, they can't succeed in every realm. That endless cycle of failure and frustration, the Sabbath rest of God is intended to break into and break you out of it. Not bailing out of it, but pulling you to a place where you can rest in God and experience His joy and His success.
So as we go back to Hebrews 4 this morning, there's a couple things I want to remind you of. First of all, Hebrews was written to Christians. Whatever this chapter says, it says to believers. And so when he says, Therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should come short of it, he is telling us that it is possible for you to be a child of God, a Christian, and fall short of experiencing the rest of God. You can be a Christian and not experience the rest that this chapter is explaining. And the second thing we need to remember about them is they were a group of Christians who were under great duress. They had been living stressful lives because of opposition to their faith, and they were considering turning back. And so the, the people to whom he's writing are people in a pressure cooker existence. They're at odds with their family. They're having trouble with their work. Some of them have lost their businesses. They're ostracized in the community. They're talked about and whispered about in town. They are rejected from the synagogue. Their friends have abandoned them. Their government is becoming increasingly intolerant of their religion. They are at outs with everyone. It's to this group of people in this pressure cooker life that the writer of Hebrews is saying, there is a resting place for you. Be sure you don't miss it. And so whatever kind of pressure cooker you're living in this morning, I want to say to you, there is a Sabbath rest of God. Be sure you don't miss it. Because some missed it. And even the rest that is available today for Christians, some miss because of unbelief and disobedience. I want to spend the remaining moments talking about the hindrances to entering the rest of God. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the first one, but let me say that the first hindrance is ignorance. Many people don't even know that the rest of God exists. We are so prone as human beings in our natural way of thinking to do things the way we've always done them that it is hard for us to imagine there is another way. We tend to revert back to the ordinary human solutions to everything. And we really think that we have some good ideas. And the church has suffered from that mentality. The scripture says that God hates the garment that is even spotted or tainted by the flesh. What he's talking about there is that when you serve God in your own strength, from your own ideas, with your own energy, you are just tainting everything you do with your ability, with your flesh, and God finds that objectionable. It's actually nauseating to him. But the church frequently falls into that trap as soon as it falls out of the Spirit. And the, and the richer the church gets, and the more successful the church gets, 
And the more materialistically minded we become, the more likely we are to live in the realm of natural worship and natural solutions. It's kind of the the thing with Cain and Abel. And if you remember the story, you know that after the garden, Adam and Eve had two children, at least two that come to note right off the bat, Cain and Abel, and their story is important because they both brought an offering to God which resulted in murder. They brought an offering, Abel brought a lamb, and Cain brought vegetables and fruit, basically. And God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's, and Cain got ticked off about it and killed Abel. And you you look at that story and you say, what's up with that? What's the deal? And it's, it's not like jumping off the page at you, but if you read carefully in the story, in the context of all the rest of the scripture, you become aware of what's really going on there. When Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what they did? They became aware of their shame and they tried to cover themselves with leaves, fig leaves, okay? And, and we've gone over this before, you know, have you ever tried sewing leaves together? You ever tried sitting down wearing clothing made out of leaves? See how long the seams last? It's not a very effective covering. God shows up on the scene, and after they have this discussion with him, God covers them. He covers them with the skin from animals. And when he does so, those animals die and blood is shed. And a message is driven home. The soul that sins, it will die, and without the shedding of blood, there is no cleansing from sin. Your sin requires a blood sacrifice to make a covering. That's the message. They knew that. Okay? When Cain and Abel brought their offerings, Abel brought a lamb because he was a shepherd. And Cain brought fruits and vegetables because he was a farmer. And God was disappointed with Cain. Because Cain, what he really needed to do was bring his fruits and vegetables and buy an animal from Abel, or somebody. I mean, there may have been more kids at that point, but at least we know of those two. But Cain said, I'm going to do it my way. God said blood sacrifice, but I don't want to give a blood sacrifice. I'm going to do it my way. And human beings have been trying to do it their way ever since. And it is never acceptable to God. All of our righteousness, the best we have to offer, is like filthy rags in the sight of God. When Isaiah says that, he's not talking about our sin. He's talking about our best goodness. He's talking about our best Sunday behavior. Is to God like filthy rags. It doesn't cut it. It's not sufficient. God is only pleased with what comes from the Spirit and has eternal value because it originates with him and he offers it to us that's the problem you know if there was no solution then the best we had to offer would you know god would say okay you're doing the best you can but he says i give you my spirit you're going to have my spirit and he will do this for you and lead you appropriately and give you power and energize you with works that I have created from the foundation of the world for you to walk in that will have eternal significance. So why waste your time doing it your way? 
I've made provision. But we get in the flesh and we start marketing the church and developing concepts and you know doing things our way and creating programs and et cetera, et cetera. And pretty soon the church forgets all about life in the spirit. They forget all about abiding. And generations go by without any knowledge of what that means. I grew up in a church where I had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit, hardly, until our youth pastor discovered the deeper life and brought that message to us. I, I didn't even know. I, I called the Holy Spirit an it and vaguely comprehended him as being a part of the Trinity until I was 16 years old. Because I didn't even know to ask if there was more. The church never taught me anything else than filling out that offering envelope, checking off the Sunday school, did I read my Bible, did I study my lesson, did I bring a visitor, whatever all those were, and make sure I dotted the I's and crossed the T's and, and got everything done and attended the things and, and, and worked, and that's all I knew. And that's all many Christians have ever learned. And frankly, that's a very dry and frustrating life. Unless you have the gift of that, and then it's a very exciting life in the flesh till you get tired. Ignorance is one of the reasons people do not enter the rest of God. But I hate to tell you, you will not have that excuse after a few more weeks because I'm educating you. <laughs> you cannot claim ignorance in this congregation anymore, okay? I'm telling you, there is a Sabbath rest that is available for the people of God. And last Sunday and this Sunday and in uh, October when we start back into Romans 5.12, we're going to explain it in detail. There is opportunity to come to the rest of God. You will not be ignorant. So you can cross that one off. Just in case people look at you weird and say he's preaching on what? You'll understand. Most churches don't get it. The second reason that we fail to enter the rest of God is there is a refusal to let go of our personal agenda, a refusal to die to self. You know, when the Israelites were crying out for deliverance, you remember what God said? I have heard your cry, and I am coming to you. He didn't even say, I have heard your prayer. He said, I have heard your cry. I don't even know that they knew enough at that point in their existence to be praying, but they were crying for deliverance. And you know what their motive was? Get me out of here. Okay, I want out. I want deliverance. I am tired of this slavery and this bondage and this horrible manual labor, and we have no freedom, and I want out. And God got them out. But the only problem was they were not really asking to follow God. They were asking to get relief. And so when it came down to following God, they started kicking and bucking. All of a sudden they were resisting things because that wasn't really what they wanted. Many times people come to Christ because they want and need deliverance. And in the moment of the crisis, they're willing to say, God, you can have my life, forgive my sin, take over my life, you can be in charge, I'm tired of this thing. And then they go out and start living, and all of a sudden it's like, well, but there's a couple of things I'd really like to hang on to. 
There's some things I sort of like, and I really don't want you to mess with those. And all of a sudden, we begin to kind of pull back the permission. Friends, you cannot enter the rest of God if you still want to live under your own agenda. You can't serve two masters. You cannot abide in Christ and be over here doing your own thing. If you're abiding in Christ, you're hanging on the vine. You have to be where the vine is. If you don't want to rest there, if you want to go play over here, you can't abide in Christ. You, you can either be there or here. But you cannot be both places. And people get frustrated because their Christian life is this struggle between what I want and what God wants. To abide in Christ and to enter the rest of God, you have to rest in Him, where He is, accepting His will and His plan for you. Letting go of our own agendas takes many forms. You know, and, and this is where we get hung up as well. Some, some, some things are very obvious. I mean, you know, if you have a problem with internet pornography... It doesn't take a rocket scientist in the faith to figure out that you have an agenda that is at cross-purposes with God. You know, filling your mind with the, with the abuse of women predominantly and, and, and seeing your sisters in Christ, your potential sisters, as just tools and, and uh, objects to use for your own gratification. And, and that whole mindset is clearly at odds with God's purposes. You know, you don't have to be a spiritual giant to figure some of those things out. You know, if you have habits that take you into, into sinful behaviors, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to be too smart to know, okay, that's not compatible with resting in Jesus. And it's not. But there are other things that are not so obvious. And those are the things that sometimes we struggle with. Some of us rather like the way we are. When it comes to making us look like Christ, we're all for getting rid of those nasty, filthy habits because they're expensive and, and they're damaging and they cause problems and whatever like that. But we're not so ready to give up certain personality traits. Maybe we're the impatient sort. Maybe we're the demanding sort. Maybe we're super perfectionist. Maybe we have a temper Maybe we have all those kinds of things, you know, and, and we want to say, God, I want you to fix all this other stuff, but I kind of like who I am in these other ways. And you cannot set the agenda for what God wants to change in your life. He's not going to, to make you into some person that doesn't look like you at all. But he has every intention of removing from your life and the power of his spirit those things that are contrary to his character. And if you're not willing for that to happen, if you don't want that, you're going to have a hard time abiding in Christ in the Sabbath rest because the Holy Spirit, that's a part of your problem. That's why you don't rest. And the Holy Spirit wants to deal with that. God wants to change you in significant ways. 
And some people don't want to be changed. Also less obvious are personal goals and career goals or hobby goals, which in and of themselves may not be sinful. But friends, you cannot come to God to have his rest on your terms. You can't come to him and say, God, I'd really like to abide in Christ. And by the way, don't mess up my long-range goals because I plan to, you know, to finish college and get an MBA and I want to you know, go to Wall Street and make a lot of money and that's my goal. Or, or I plan to be a doctor or I plan to be a this or that or whatever. Whatever your long-range goals are. This is the scary part, friends. But you have got to submit them to Jesus Christ. You've got to say to him, I'm going to abide in you, and I will receive from you what you want to give me. And we get afraid of that. I'll tell you, when I was, when I was uh, coming to the end of my high school year, and I was wrestling with God, this is the very thing I was wrestling with, because I had a career in mind, and it wasn't this. I had a career in mind. There's something I really wanted to do. And God kept calling me, and I kept holding back, because I had a feeling that if I came to him, he would change my direction. And I had an inkling that I knew what he wanted to do. And I didn't want any part of it. And we had a standoff for about a year. And finally I got really tired. I needed rest. And I came to God and said, you know what? I give up. I, I'm just not doing well. And I submit. And when I did, within two or three months, he said, I have another plan for you. Now, friends, I'm not telling you God is going to change your career goals or your personal goals. I'm not telling you that. But I'm telling you, you must be willing. You must be willing. You must be open to God. To, to be able to do what he has crafted you for from the foundation of the earth. Where does unbelief enter here? What are we talking about? I'm talking about submission, but I told you the problem is unbelief. Here's where unbelief comes in. We do not believe that where God will take us will give us greater satisfaction and richer joy than where we think we want to go ourselves. We are not convinced that God is such a God of love and such a God of grace and blessing that if I turn everything over to Him, what He gives me will be better than anything I could choose for myself. That's our unbelief. And we stumble at that point because we see something we want. And we say... I can't submit to God. What if he doesn't want that? Well, you're going to have a tough Christian life. Because you're going to be rocking along in life, struggling in your own power, missing the rest of God because you will not believe him for that greater goal. 
God made you. I mean, think about this just a moment. See how illogical this is? God made you. He skillfully wove you in your mother's womb. He knows your name. He's known it from before the foundation of the earth. He has a plan for you that is so perfectly designed for you that when you're in it, you will feel comfortable and cozy as if it were a tailor-made glove for your life. You will have his presence because it is his plan. You will enjoy his power and his fellowship. He has designed you for a purpose that when you're in that purpose, you will never be happier than that place. And the enemy comes along and says, God's going to do this to you. And you don't want to go there. It'll take away all your fun. Who is the taskmaster in Egypt anyway, cracking the whip and handing you mud for another brick? Who is that? It's the devil. He's the one taunting you to hang out there with your own program. And God says, come to me. I know what will bless your socks off because I made it with you in mind. You go together. And we don't believe it. So we hold back. Unbelief keeps us out of the rest. Even less obvious are normal and reasonable expectations that everyone has. I want financial security. I remember talking to one of our missionaries who had come back uh, from Guatemala, Douglas DeMeyer. And I was talking with Doug one day, and he was talking about his kids, and we were talking about retirement and inheritance and all those kinds of things. And Doug said, the only inheritance I have for my kids, and I've told them this from day one, the only thing I have to leave them is Jesus. He said, I have nothing else to leave them. And they know it. But what's wrong with that? You see, we want certain things that we think are normal expectations. This is appropriate. But only Christians in the West think that way. Talk to Christians in Ethiopia, talk to Christians in Somalia, talk to Christians in Indonesia. They don't know anything about that kind of security. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. I have that under control. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will take care of you. You know what? It is God's job to feed me till the day I die. Do you realize that? And it's God's job to feed you. Now, I didn't say that we didn't have some responsibility. But there is a responsibility that exists within the umbrella of that Sabbath rest of God. If you're lazy and sit on your duff and don't want to do anything, the Scripture says don't feed that person. They need some motivation, so just hold the food back until they get the picture. But if you are open to serving however God leads you, whatever it is, and, and you're diligent, and, and you are committed to Him, and you're engaged, it's God's job to put food on your table. 
That's what he says. That's my responsibility. Your responsibility is to seek me and my kingdom. My responsibility is to take care of you. You can rest in that. And that's a pretty cool place of rest. But you know what? It can be nerve-wracking if you're always wondering, well, will I have enough? Am I going to have enough? Can I pay the bills? Can I do this? Can I do that? We have to rest there. That's a part of the Sabbath rest. But see, we have a hard time talking about that because it is such a normal expectation in America. This is reasonable. We should have this. So when we come to God and give everything to Him, it's like, whoa. We should be able to expect to have a comfortable home. I mean, what if I can't have the house I want? Well, you can work for the house or you can rest in God. Once again, talk to Christians in Somalia that are sitting under a tree with a blanket and tell them how it is reasonable to expect God to give you a three-bedroom, two-bath house. And what, what's wrong with you? Where's your faith? You know, why don't you people have this? I mean, think about it a minute. We put a lot of effort into stuff. Into stuff. You say, you know what, Paul, you're talking like a crazy man because you're, you're kind of giving me the willies. If I, if I come to God and give it all to him, am I going to lose all this stuff? I don't know. You might have more. We have a tendency to want to compare it, and that's exactly what Peter and John, that was what was going on. When You remember that conversation on the beach after the resurrection that Jesus had with Peter? And Jesus calls Peter over and he says, Peter, do you love me? And you know, you know the deal. Yeah, you, you know I'm, a, I'm fond of you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really, really love me? Lord, why are you rubbing this in? I mean... I betrayed you, you know that, I, I, I denied you, you know, yeah, I like you, but feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And about that time, Peter kind of pulls an Adam. The woman that you made, she's my prop. Peter says, what about him? Points to John. What about him? And you know what Jesus says? He's not your problem, Peter. <laughs> if I want him to live till I come back, that's my business. I'm talking to you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Don't worry about John. John's my business. See, we have a tendency to do the sideways glance thing and say, well, but what about, but what about, but and God says, we're not talking about these other folks sitting in this room. I'm talking to you. Do you love me? And we have a hard time entering the rest of God because we want to hold to ourselves the right to pursue the norm. And what God says is, will you sit in my lap and trust me with what I give you? You know, sometimes we're, we're like these little kids. You've seen them in the supermarket or the Walmart or the Target or something, and they're on their parents' pants or skirt. Gimme, I want it, I want it, I want it. Mommy, mommy, can I, can I, can I, can I? You know, it's going on like that. They're not at rest. 
They're so focused on what they want to get their grubby little hands around, all they can do is beg their parent. You know how frustrating that can be, but they're frustrated too because they're anxious and worried that you're going to get out of the store without them getting what they want. And that's how a lot of Christians live their lives. Just kind of yanking on God's tail all the time, hanging on his coat. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want it, I want it, I want it. And we're so afraid we're not going to get it. And God says, why don't you just sit in my lap and let me hold you, and I will give you what I know is best for you. And we say, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if you really know what I need. He put me together. What do you mean? Unbelief. The third reason why we often fail to enter the rest of God is we want to use God for our own ends and expectations that are carnal. Entering the rest of God means to abide restfully in the place where God is in the vine while he produces his fruit. Most of us spend a great deal of time trying to get from God what we think we want. I just kind of illustrated that with the little kid. But we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to, how to get from God what we want. Many Christians are engaged in the business of trying to get the formula that triggers the heavenly... Um, what's that thing in Las Vegas? Thank you. <laughs> Mental moment here, senior moment. You know, we're trying to figure out how to pull the heavenly slot machine to get the things to line up so we can get the, the booty that comes out of the little hole. And that's how we live our lives. We say, okay, if, 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 I, if I work for God, Ron, can I sign up to work in Awana? I'd like to do that. But, but our, our, our back door agenda is, I'm going to serve God over here. That should make him happy. And I'm going to learn the right formula to pray. And I'm going to have a quiet time every day. I'm going to read my Bible. And I'm going to have a prayer time. And I'm going to come to church. And I'm going to learn how to pray. And I'm going to serve. And I'm going to do these things. And if I do that, God will give me what I want, right? He'll answer my prayers, right? I mean, what's this all about anyway? Isn't it about trying to get God to do what I need? So I have to figure out the formula for getting God to respond to me. Some people listen to TV, and they listen to the TV pastors, and they're, they're all into this name-it-claim-it stuff, or this uh, Christian abundance and wealth stuff. And, you know, if I, if I, well, I'll give money to this guy. He tells me, if I send him an offering, God's going to bless me. That sounds like a, a, something worth trying. I mean, what can I lose? I'll send 50 bucks and see what happens. And we play these games. I remember years ago getting a book that was like from prison to praise. And the whole theme of the book was, if I learn how to praise God in the appropriate ways and in every situation, he's going to turn around and just dump blessing on me. And I can't tell you how many people bought that book so they could figure out the praise key to pulling the slot and making the things line up. You know, there's another prayer that came out a little while back, the prayer of Jabez. Okay, if I pray this prayer, things are going to happen in my life. But ching, I'm going to try this coin. 
And, and we work like that. If I pray in the name of Jesus, I even heard some teaching that says you have to pray out loud and you have to use the right word. You have to proclaim the word of faith in the name, in the name of Jesus, brother. And if you, if you just, if you do it right, God is gonna, God is gonna respond. And you can't do this in your head because the demons won't know what you're saying. You've you got to speak out loud. What happens to the person that's had throat cancer and has no pharynx? What happens to them? No larynx. They can't talk anymore. They can't pray. God can't read your mind. God knows what your heart is feeling before your head even is aware of it. You don't have to phonate to hear, to, for God to hear you. But we get this thing down to a formula, and you've got to say the word of faith in the name of Jesus. I declare by his power this is going to happen. You know what that is? Let me, if you've read the outline, you're ahead of me, but let me just put it succinctly. When we use sacrifice, service, quiet time, Bible reading. We use sacrifice, ritual, certain words and phrases to manipulate a deity to give us what we want. It's called witchcraft. It is witchcraft. It is not a submitted, following relationship with the living God. It is an attempt to manipulate a deity to give me what I want, and the Bible calls that witchcraft. When Jesus said, pray in my name, I wonder if he has regretted that through the years. Because we feel that if we don't add to the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen, that, that we've done something wrong. That is not what Jesus meant in the least. What he meant was, when you come and you have heard from me and you know what I want and, and, you, and you ask for that thing, you are asking in my place as if you were standing in my shoes. And I will answer that prayer. It's all right to say in Jesus' name, but it's not required. It's not that I said it, it's that I'm doing it that matters. I'm living and abiding in Christ. So it's in Him that I'm asking. That's the key. It's not a formula that we add to the end to make it happen. That's back to the occult. Don't get hung up on that, but think about it so that you know what you're doing when you're doing it. Does that mean that, that God doesn't care about you, that, that you can't come to him with your needs and wants? Of course not. The Bible has an open invitation for you to come to the Father, curl up in his lap and say, Daddy, I've had a really bad day. Can I tell you about it? And if you have some ideas of what you would like to make it better, he's open to listening. But understand when you have that kind of communication with God that you must end your 
time by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The only time I'm aware of that Jesus prayed that way is when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as a man facing the cross and and all that was about to come, he said, in all honesty, Father, if it be thy will, allow this cup to pass from me. Nonetheless, Not my will, but yours be done. You don't find Jesus praying that way anywhere else in the Gospels. He stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And before he said that, he prayed this way, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and that you always hear me. Now, Lazarus, come out of that grave. Oh, if it's your will, Father. He already knew the Father's will because he'd already had the conversation and knew what the Father wanted. That's why he waited four days before he showed up because God had a purpose and a plan in Lazarus' death and resurrection and Jesus was submitted to the Father's purposes as much as his heart wanted to go there to Mary and Martha and console them and and to be with Lazarus in those delicate hours of his dying moments. As much as the heart of Jesus would do that, the, the will of Jesus was committed to the will of the Father and God said, wait, because I'm going to bring him out of the grave and make a statement that cannot be made any other way. And so when Jesus stood in front of that tomb, he didn't have to say, I'd sure like to see a resurrection here, and we want to pray for that in my name, and and if your will be done, amen. He said, come out of there. He said to the sick, be healed. He said to the demonized, come out of that boy in in the name of Jesus, you come out of him. He was speaking in his own authority to the demoniac. He declared authoritatively what he knew to be the mind of God. But when he came to that place in his own life, where he had that personal need that he expressed to his father, he very carefully couched his desire in the submission that said, God, this is what I'm feeling, my father, but I want you to know I'm submitted to your will. Friends, when you come to the place where you're willing to say, Father, I accept your will unconditionally. Whatever you want for me is what I want because I know that that's best. And I'm glad that I can come to you and cry on your shoulder and tell you my aches and pains and my hurts and wants. I'm glad that I can pour out my burdens and share with you all the things that are going on in my life. But I want you to know that when it's all said and done, more than anything else, I want only what you want. I accept your will for me. That is the place of rest. Many people cannot enter the rest because they will not stop pulling at the coattails of God, begging for the toy on the shelf that they think they've got to have in order to be happy. And we spend a lot of time looking for ways to manipulate God to get that response, and that is acting just like a witch doctor who's trying to get the demons to respond with the right formula, to give the desired blessing or cursing as it may be. The hindrances to entering God's rest all boil down to unbelief. Either we don't understand what's available, so we can't believe for it, or we do have a sense 
but we're still hanging on. You've heard me tell the story. I don't know if it's true or not or just an allegory. Somebody has been there that can tell me. But supposedly missionaries have said that the, the way they catch monkeys in Indonesia is they put nuts in a narrow-necked bottle. And the monkey will put its little hand in the bottle and grab a hold of the nut. Now there's a fist that will not come back out of the neck. And they can't climb because they won't let go of those nuts because they got their fist in a dumb bottle. Duh. How stupid. But you know what? Many of us are not enjoying the rest of God because we've got our little fist wrapped around some nuts we think we've got to have to be happy. And the devil's chasing us around the forest and we can't even begin to climb or get out of his way because we've got our hand in a stupid bottle hanging on to what we think we've got to have. And we don't believe that what God will give us if we just turn loose and take our hand out of that dumb thing and cling to him, we don't believe that what he has to offer is by far better. And so we struggle and we get exhausted and we keep working instead of resting. Father, I pray this morning that you would create within us a hunger to enter the rest of God, but also a willingness to let go. And Lord, we confess to you that we are dumb. We, we, we are. We, we don't even know how to let go. We need your help, just like we needed your help to open our eyes and save our souls. We need your help to open our eyes and give us peace and release and faith to believe, to enter the rest of God. But it's not impossible. You wouldn't mock us if it were. You tell us that it is possible to come into your rest. This morning, by faith, give us the grace to turn loose of the things we're holding on to, that we might enter the restful life and find the peace and the repose and the joy and the blessing that exist in simply abiding in Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.